0: Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry, coming to you today from the Pacific Northwest, the inland Pacific Northwest. Today, I'm going to talk to you about a correlation between hepatocellular carcinoma and obesity. This is a um, series of lectures. This will be the very first one. I'll probably do between three and five, depending on how much material I want to cover, and I'll keep each one below thirty minutes. So let's get started. Again, I'm Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. I have a doctorate degree, and I study biochemistry, molecular genetics, cell biology, and I apply all of those disciplines to biomedicine. Uh, I also run a company with a co-owner, and that company is called VeraMed. You can pick up my Vera Med uh, video lectures on my Facebook page. Um, Just look up uh, Dan Guerra, Med, and you'll find the Facebook page and uh, you'll be able to go from there. So let's get started. All right. So a recent paper came out in Nature Reviews, uh, Gastroenterology and Hepatology, uh, about uh, a month ago, the early part of April 2019. I'm publishing this on the 15th of May 2019 actually, the uh, birthday of my younger daughter. So what are we going to start with? First of all, I'll explain some basic problems in uh, the human condition. Obesity is an epidemic worldwide. It's believed there might be as many as 2 billion adults that are overweight that is obese, according to the WHO. If that isn't enough to start keeping your eye on... um, uh, if, if that isn't enough to start keeping your eyes setting at six foot one, which is how tall I am and above by trying to add 40 million kids, five years and younger to that data. What I'm saying is that if you look around and you lower your gaze below where your eyes are, you're going to notice that obesity is everywhere. So if you don't want to see it, it's really easy to do. Just keep your eye setting at your eye setting and above. And since I'm six one, that usually covers a lot of people. But obviously, that's not the way to deal with this biomedical problem. Now, we all know that there are obvious links of obesity to cardiovascular disease. I've covered these on numerous episodes in various lectures. And of course, I've also done a lot of that over my uh, three decades as a professor of biochemistry. Um, But there's another link that we don't talk about as much. I do because I teach lipids. I'm a lipid biochemist. And that is a um, syndrome or a disease known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's NFLD or NAFLD, depending on how the acronym is published. Now, NAFLD can lead directly to hepatocellular carcinoma, which is abbreviated HCC. So the um, line diagram goes like this. The vector goes obesity arrow to NAFLD, arrow to HCC. Now, of course, that's not uniform, but that's basically how the etiology of the disease goes. So BC is becoming the number one health-related physical abnormality and pathology in humans. It's dangerously increasing in our children as young adults, as I just said. <clears throat> it's defined as having a bi- body mass index equal to or higher than 30 kilograms per meter squared. And it's correlated with the following: metabolic syndrome, which has to do with hypertension, um, problems with dyslipidemia, lots of other uh, sequelae in that in that syndrome. Type two diabetes, which of course is non-insulin dependent, uh, glucose um, lack of glucose uptake. Uh, when I say non-insulin dependent, it usually means that you synthesize insulin from the beta cells of the pancreas but it's insufficient because of insulin resistance to its receptor. <clears throat> then there's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease I just mentioned, NAFLD, leading to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is a little bit more severe condition because whenever it's, a hep- it's an itis, it means that it is an inflammation. It's a major risk factor, as I said, for several types of cardiovascular disease, but also cancer, notably of which are pancreatic and hepatic, as we're going to talk about now. <laughs> These are some of the most lethal cancers within five-year survival rates of only about 48%. That's pancreatic and hepatic. Hepatocellular carcinoma is the most common form of living cancer. And the connection between obesity and cancer is mediated by a state of chronic, low-grade inflammation in the involved tissues. In this case, it would be the liver. So a paper published in Nature back in 2013 Uh, mentions. This is published 2013, July 4th, and the uh, series is 499, pages 97 and ongoing. Senescence-associated secretory phenotype, or SASP, plays a major role in promoting obesity-associated HCC. Obesity actually induces alterations in gut microbiota, and thereby increases levels of something called deoxycholic acid, or DCA. That's a gut bacterial metabolite, and it's known to cause DNA damage. Whenever you hear DNA damage, think about um, cellular either degeneration or proliferation. So there is an enterohepatic circulation of DCA, and that provokes this senescence-associated secretory phenotype in the hepatic stellate cell, or the HSCs. And that, in turn, causes secretion of various pro-inflammatory and tumor-inducing factors in the liver, and thus that is believed to contribute to HCC. It's known that if you block DCA production or you reduce gut bacteria that produce it sufficiently, it can prevent or at least it can delay HCC development in obese mice. Similar results were seen in mice lacking something called the SASP inducer or depleted of senescence HSCs themselves, indicated that the DCA SASP axis, the one I just mentioned to you, uh, in HSCs has a key role in obesity-associated hepatocellular carcinoma. Remember, those HSC are those stellate cells in the liver. Indeed, the signs of SASP were also observed in the stellate cells uh, hepatic stellate cells arising in patients with Nash. Remember that's steatohepatitis, indicating a similar pathway and can contribute to at least certain aspects of obesity-associated uh, hepatocellular carcinoma development in humans. So here's another paper. We can we're doing an overview here. We're going to get into that review paper in a moment that was just published. This comes from the Annual Review of Pathological Mechanisms of Disease, published in 2010. Uh, it is uh, volume five, page 99 ongoing. And what this paper, what I'm deriving from, extracting from is the following. <clears throat> senescence is a tumor suppressive mechanism, typically. And it permanently arrests cells at risk for malignant transformations. One of the reasons when you get age, uh, aging of the cells is called senescence. Um, the more senescence you get, the less likely you're going to get a malignancy or tumorigenesis because senescence tends to counteract that. However, current evidence does show that senescent cells can nevertheless have pathological effects within the microenvironment. Most significant of those is the acquisition of what I just mentioned to you, the senescence-associated secretory phenotype known as SASP. That turns senescent fibroblasts into pro-inflammatory cells, and they have the ability to promote, unfortunately, tumor progression. So... There's something called the DNA damage signaling pathway that leads to the activation of of the P53 tumor suppressor. Normally, the activated P53 triggers cell fate decisions such as senescence or apoptosis. But depending on the cell context, the P53 protein can suppress cancer through transient cell cycle arrest and the activation of what's known as the DNA repair machine or various mechanisms of DNA repair. Which I've gone over in other Vera Med uh, lectures. But additionally, <laughs> P53 restrains the senescence associated secretory phenotype. It's very important. So the regulation of SAS by P53 does suggest a cell non autonomous function of that tumor suppressor. So in the short term, the SAS may promote tissue repair, but in the long term, it may promote chronic inflammation, which in turn, can drive cancer and aging. Okay, both of which uh, can cause problems. Now, but for a long time that caloric restriction uh, postpones senescence. I'm not going to go through that now. I have a series of lecturers on aging, but keep that in mind. So if caloric restriction postpones senescence, it's very likely it also diminishes SASP. And I just told you that SASP can induce certain aspects of tumorigenesis, particularly in the liver and the cellate cells. Now, there's a lot of other things besides this uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines involved in SASP. There's also a lot of oxidative damage. And you know that there are enzymes that not only remove reactive oxygen, reactive oxygen, means things like superoxide, even hydrogen peroxide, or the hydroxyl anion. Um, but the enzymes that normally remove that are functional through most of your life in a healthy person. Those are superoxide dismutases, catalases, peroxidases, glutathione reductases, enzymes like that. Unfortunately, though, the activity of those enzymes or the expression of them as you age in certain cell types (coughs) drops. And so you're overwhelmed with more reactive oxygen. You can't get rid of it. You can't quench a reactive oxygen. That induces protein damage, lipid damage which can then cause a chain reaction of more reactive oxygen species being generated, then causing DNA and RNA damage, some of which could be mutations in the DNA. Some of those mutations could, of course, lead ultimately to uh, tumorigenesis. So you get the idea. So there are, you know, oxidants with damage, as I said, DNA, lipid, and protein. I just explained them to you. DNA damage is probably the most uh, um, worrying because during aging, there are just a lot of oxygens that interact with DNA, a lot of molecular oxygen around, and the molecular oxygen itself is a bioradical. So once you start partially reducing that, you get uh, all of those species of ROS. I just mentioned your reactive oxygen species. And that can lead to things that are really nasty, like lipid peroxidation. So the idea is that ROS can cause DNA damage. DNA damage directly can cause uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, How does that link up with our whole idea of obesity? Well, a high fat or high sugar diet, any kind of endocrine disorder, a couple maybe with a sedentary sedentary lifestyle. By endocrine disorder, I mean maybe with adipokines or maybe with insulin, (coughs) like insulin resistance and type two diabetes. There are hereditary factors involved sometimes in obesity. And of course some medications, particularly neuropsychiatric drugs involved, for example, in the treatment of schizophrenia and certain personality disorders. All of that can lead to obesity. Obesity can directly lead to reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen, which causes DNA damage, and in some rarer cases, can cause hepatocellular carcinoma. But obesity certainly is a direct precursor to NAFLD. It's not alcoholic fatty liver disease. That can cause hepatic hyperplasia and hepatic hyperplasia in terms of um, fibrogenesis leading to fibros- fibrosis. Both can go directly into a hepatocellular carcinoma. But NAFLD can also lead to NASH, that's non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. That can induce fibrogenesis and then fibrosis, that is inflammation of the uh, of, of new cells, new fibrocells. cells. That can lead to cirrhosis of the liver, and cirrhosis is also a direct precursor often uh, in in cases that have been reported for HCC. So the key points is that a steady increase in BMI and this worldwide epidemic is currently currently estimated to cause upwards of 100,000 cancer-related deaths per year just in the U.S. Now, there are some infections which can also do that, such as the viruses HB and HCV. Um, But obesity has still been implicated as a genesis of insulin resistance, which, of course, is hallmark of type 2 diabetes. And that is often coupled to NAFLD and NASH, hepatic fibrosis and cirrhosis. And that, again, depending on some complications that could be added to it, of course, those important mutations, liver failure, and, of course, uh, HCC. So obesity is, again, always associated with chronic low-grade systemic inflammation, which can lead to this paradigmatic shift to oncogenesis. And any kind of hypertrophic adipocytes uh, they're going to be secreting free fatty acids and together with various immune cells. They're going to re- because of that, fatty acids induce the pro-inflammatory response. You get pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF alpha and the leukin 6 and the leukin 1 beta and leukin 8, 10, 18, 17. Those are the some, some of the nasty players in the cytokine family. Uh, as well as again, some specialized or, or altered in expression. Adipokines, such as leptin and adiponectin. We covered adiponectin a while back when we were talking about schizophrenia. So there's a lot of things to consider here, and uh, not the least of which is, of course, as I just said, diet, right? Diet itself. So what's the axis of disease progression? Well, NAFLD presents over several years and is characterized by progressive accumulation of hepatocytic triacylglycerol, Represents a pathophysiological spectrum of massive tag accumulation and, of course, steatosis. Uh, and that can be associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver or NASH. So that leads to tag accumulation by vitamin mean triacylglycerol. Plus, you get the inflammation and the injury. That, all that is hallmark for paradigmatic for NASH. Progresses in uh, unfortunate cases to hepatic fibrosis and cirrhosis. And then again onto the tumorigenic track, HCC. It's believed that the current global NAFLD is at about 25% in adults. It's an astonishing increase from 15% in 2005 to that 25% by 2010. So that's a dramatic increase, and it tracks with obesity. Okay, so that's the real problem there. Is that you've got you know we know that we're getting problems with obesity, and we know that it's tracking with a lot of liver disease. So NAFLD, right, fatty liver disease, is also linked to metabolic syndrome uh, and type 2 diabetes. And the constellation of both somatic and central nervous system-associated pathologies tightly linked to dysfunctional bioenergetics, uh, such as the alteration of biofuels between glucose and fatty acid, signaling failure intracellularly and extracellularly and across tissues, and what what we can call just a pathological presentation, which arises from a neuroimmunoepigenomic modification of gene expression. Ultimately, epigenetics plays a role. What's the etiology? Well, there used to be a thing called the two-strike hypothesis. It's not supported by the research anymore um, because, basically, we've gone and we've looked for this. So it's not simply that lipids accumulate like neutral lipid-like triacylglycerol. Then reactive oxygen generated, because you've got all those fatty acids with double bonds being partially oxidized, generating reactive oxygen. And then the cells become damaged and either degenerate. Senescence, so for example, could be one pathway, apoptosis. And then simply they act as a beacon for immune degradation. That was the two-strike hypothesis. But it's not as simple as I said. The actual etiology of NASH involves hormonal imbalances, such as insulin resistance, Followed then by hyperinsulinemia, you know, the body's interest, uh, tries to build up more insulin because insulin resistance occurs uh, throughout the periphery. And then that, especially like in muscle cells, a major place, and adipocytes, another major place. That's uh, insulin resistance, I mean. Followed by switching to fatty acid accumulation, okay, through something like CD36 receptor, which I've talked about in the past. And then subsequent incomplete beta oxidation of the fatty acids, down to acetyl-CoA, that is incomplete. Because of that, you build up reactive oxygen. You build up intermediate fatty acids, which tend to then block beta oxidation because the shorter-chain fatty acids are better substrates than the longer-chain fatty acids, uh, fatty acyl-coides, that is, and after current chain translocation uh, into the inner mitochondria space through the two membranes. All that can cause increases in ROS, reactive oxygen, that is, and other toxic metabolites like oxysterols, very important and significant. That can all damage the liver. It can induce this fibrogenesis, thus leading to the emblematic presentation of hepatic steatosis or NASH, followed by the inflammation, and then the to fibrosis-based liver malfunction and ultimately hepatotoxicity and death. Ethanol can exacerbate this pathway anywhere along that axis. So you get a dual etiology for obese drinkers. In fact, their rate of of, uh, getting HCC is, is... greatly uh, accelerated if you have alcoholics that are also obese. Most people people with NAFLD or NASH don't graduate to HCC, which is great. So that means there's obviously repair mechanisms that are at work, and we know these, and we've talked about them. So again, NAFLD prevalence in the entire population is probably around 25%. That can lead to a borderline NASH and then full-blown NASH. Once you get full blown NASH, you can get anywhere people who have NASH between 34 and 42 percent can lead to what's called NASH plus fibrosis. And the fibrosis can be tracked by giving it stages, and we call them stages F1 through F4. So NASH with fibrosis stages F1 to F3 then can lead at some other reduced amount to NASH plus cirrhosis, which is then frankly called F4. And then between about 25 to about 13% of people that get to stage 4, F4, which is basically full-blown NASH and cirrhosis, between, again, 25 and 30 percent will get HCC. And that's an annual incidence, okay? And then after that, what do you do when you get HCC? Well, it's either liver transplantation or it's uh, death. So what modifies its disease progression and the HCC risk? Sedentary lifestyle, high caloric intake, uh, like exacerbated, Also, alcohol. Obesity is directly associated with it, correlated tightly. Insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, tightly correlated. And then there are ger- certain genetic modifiers, uh, which some genes we'll talk about later, um, Podcast, i will not going to talk about them today. Uh, but one of them is PMPLA3, and the other is TM6SF2. You can start looking those up now. I'll talk about them later. Uh, and the age, the older you are, the more likely you can get HCC. So, again, sedentary lifestyle, high caloric intake, that's the groundwork for the development of NAF, AFLD, which can develop into the borderline nonalcoholic alcoholic NASH. And then uh, you get weak inflammation. Uh, and, th- and then when you go to full-blown NASH, and we call that necroinflammation, fibrosis, cirrhosis, and eventually HCC, the steatosis you see, which is a fat-associated inflammation of the liver, and Nash appear to be highly dynamic, and mostly, most likely, it could be reversed in the context of a treatment response or a lifestyle change. Thus, is lose weight and stop overeating and get rid of that sedentary lifestyle. Uh, a Nash and a lesser degree NAFLD can cause. Um, Liver cancer in the presence or absence of liver fibrosis and cirrhosis. So, it can also go directly to that. doesn't need that in the etiology of disease, which is rather interesting. That probably just means more massive mutations, right? To a molecular genesis, that's what we would probably argue. Uh, in other cases, NASH can trigger liver cancer, to the development of fibrosis of distinct severity. And that's when we go through those fibrosis stages one through three. And finally, F4, which is frank cirrhosis. So that's what we're that's that's what we're talking about here. All right, now paper published a year before the one we're discussing, actually two years before, same journal, Nature Reviews, Gastroenterology and Hepatology, volume 14, that's pages 397 ongoing, published in 2017, mentions the following: Hepatic fibrosis is a processive dysfunctional pathocellular event involving proliferation of extracellular matrix, which occurs as a result of the chronic liver injury. And that can be d- induced by lots of things. That's just obesity, like viral infection, we mentioned. Alcohol, big conveyor of liver damage. And as I said, NASH, right? The one we've been talking about. What happens here is you get an activation of hepatic stellate cells, those HSCs. And specifically what we mean here is you get a trans-differentiation of quiescent vitamin A, that's retinoic acid storing cells into the proliferative fibrogenic myofibroblast, myofibroblast. That's what we mean by triggering and turning on, activating the stellate cells as HSCs. So now that's well established, it's a central driver of fibrosis in uh, experimental and liver injury. So again, I want you to keep in mind that that is not uh, absolutely ubiquitous once you get to that cirrhosis stage, only between about 2.5 and 30 percent move all the way to um, liver cancer. But it's still, an obvious, serious problem. So, leading on to that, metabolic stress will induce what's you know, associated with a chronic, hypercaloric, high fat, or high fructose diet. Fructose is in lots of food. It's in fruits and vegetables because plants produce fructose as their sugar. They produce the disaccharide. Fructose is a disaccharide of glucose and fructose. Glucose and fructose, whenever sucrose is made, you have 50% of that sucrose is fructose. So plant-based foods actually have more fructose than the animal-based foods. Animal-based foods have practically no fructose because fructose is metabolized because of glycolysis. Anyways, high fructose or high sucrose diet, which means a high plant fruit diet, can cause metabolic disturbances in the hepatocyte, as I've been saying, and that can lead to an increase in reactive oxygen. And you also get something called endoplasmic reticulum stress, okay, or ER stress. And that involves a a folding dilemma in the ER. Um, Remember, the endoplasmic reticulum is involved in synthesis of certain proteins, many glycoproteins, for example. And acylated glycoproteins and glipiated proteins are happening in the ER. When you get stress in the ER, those proteins go through the folding response, um, uh, stress response. And when that occurs, all kinds of signal transduction cascades uh, start to fail. You also get metabolic, metabolic reprogramming, uh, switching sometimes from glucose to fatty acid or sometimes fatty acid to glucose, depending on the cell type. All those processes can lead to hepatocyte apet- cell death. Two different ways of doing it, programmed cell death, apoptosis, or what we call necroptosis which I've covered in previous various med lectures. But basically, the cells die in necroptosis and they release their contents for apoptosis. The DNA and most of the antigenic response of those cells are consumed. And so you don't induce a pro-inflammatory uh, paradigmatic state in, in adjacent tissues. Anyway, either one of those can induce an inflammatory hepatic reaction. Uh, and then you get incoming adaptive and innate immune cells. They can all affect hepatocyte metabolism through cytokine expression. They can induce some metabolic reprogramming of the hepatocytes. And all that's characterized by downregulation of hepatic genes involved in lipolysis and beta-oxidation, which means more reactive oxygen builds up. In fact, metabolic reprogramming can lead to enhanced disturbance of met- met- uh, hepatocyte metabolism that leads together with the chronic hepatocytic damage we're talking about, to getting more cell death, more DNA damage, more now hepatocytic proliferation from those stellate cells, for example, uh, and then further increased immune cell activation, which activates the, uh, further induces those stellate cells to go to fibrogenesis, and to that, to fibrosis, and then you're on your way to uh, HCC and even sometimes a procarcinogenic process in other tissues. So that's all paradigmatic about this situation. And um, again, it's not necessary that you go from cirrhosis to hepatocellular carcinoma. That is not all the cases, probably between about two and a half and 13%, but it's sufficient for that to occur. Again, think about ER stress, oxidative stress, increased reactive oxygen, and then leading down a dark pathway of hepatocytic cell death, the uh, stellate cell activation, fibrosis chronic inflammation ultimately starting to develop that HCC. Remember, there are a lot of immune cells which can trigger this. If immune surveillance fails, you start to get CD4, CD8 T cells. Again, you get these interleukin production. You get T helper cells, which produce uh, IL-17. You get IgA producing beta cells. You get natural killer T-cells and regular natural killer cells for the primary immune response, all of that can lead to HCC development. So we're going to stop there uh, because we're almost up with with time. And we're going to continue this lecture uh, on um, authentic biochemistry in uh, the next several days. Again, I think I have between three and five of these. And so stay tuned. Anyway, this is Dan Guere from Authentic Biochemistry signing off and saying bye for now.